according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, Matthew 16, where we have been now for a number of weeks. And uh, I think we have handled the rock well enough at this point. Today, I want to address the church a little bit. And then we will move on to uh, the keys. And uh, when we deal with the keys, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. When we're discussing the kingdom of heaven, we want to make sure we're clear on that. We're not confusing Israel with the church. And uh, I also want to make sure that we have a handle on what binding and loosing is all about. Because it's not about entrance. It's not about who we let into heaven and who we keep from getting into heaven. So... uh, we have some misconceptions on uh, on this passage, and hopefully today we can we can clear a lot of those up. All right, before we begin any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer, making sure that each believer priest is equipped to handle the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day you've set before us and for the opportunity we have to assemble together. And to receive instruction. Father, we, we heard a lot of sirens and vehicles out there this morning. We don't know what's going on, but something's happening here in the neighborhood. We do lift up that situation. We don't know what it is. But, Father, uh, we ask for Christ to be glorified. And we ask for your plan to be accomplished. Father, uh, we pray that uh, sirens might be kept free. And uh, we won't have an incident in this building today where we need uh, that kind of a vehicle to arrive. We pray for distractions to be set aside. We pray for concentration upon your truth. And most of all, Father, we're thankful that we live in a land with continued freedom where we can assemble together in, in, uh, in the open. Father, in a public building with a sign out front, an ad in the newspaper, and a website telling all the world who we are and where we are, Father. We're not living in fear of the government coming in and shutting us down or uh, the adversary coming in and blowing us up. Father, we have a tremendous amount of freedom. We thank you for that freedom. We thank you this morning. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, as we have dealt with Peter's great confession, we uh, saw that this was a testing opportunity for his disciples. Primarily, he was quizzing them, uh, determining whether they had the proper evaluation on uh, what the people's perspective was. Secondly, uh, we saw how the questions were centered on the identity of Jesus. Thirdly, we saw a tremendous amount of confusion. Confusion on the part of the people. And boy, if this is not applicable for our own day, you and I live in a generation where confusion reigns and we uh, ought to be able to give an account to any who might ask. Generally, we limit that to an evangelism context amongst the unbelievers, but I'm finding more and more that that imperative is uh, finding application among believers, those who may ask us to give a hope or to give an account of the hope that is within us. And sadly, that is uh, coming more and more from believers these days that are regenerate and yet don't have the doctrinal understanding of the hope that is even within themselves. So the people have some uh, confusion, but Peter has some certainty. And that's uh, a little bit different for Peter. Normally he's kind of clueless, but he has a shining moment here. He has an answer that is just as perfect as you can ask for, When he says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God or the son of God, the living one. And so we spent a lot of time on Peter's certainty, not only associating what 
the certainty was that Peter had, but also understanding what all was involved when he says, you are the Christ. What was the, uh, the what, what was entailed in Messiahship? What was the proper biblical understanding of who the Christ is? Because there were a lot of uh, flawed understandings on who the Christ is. Well, that leads us now to the celebration and then the church. The celebration of Jesus comes in verse 17. And I think that it's largely overlooked because uh, people are so anxious to get to Peter and the rock and the gates of hell and all kinds of things in verse 18 that they kind of diminish verse 17 and fail to acknowledge, I think, the, uh, the tremendous statement here of blessed are you, happy are you, makarios are you, Simon Barjona. And uh, if you've been around many classes and gotten an orientation to makarios, you may you may not speak a word of Greek or read a word of Greek, but I've harped on this enough times through the years that you've caught on to the fact that I uh, am personally livid over the rendering of Makarios as blessed, that we have it in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit, and we're kind of stuck with blessed by virtue of 300 years of English usage, thanks to King James. Well, the terms have changed a little bit. The English language has changed quite a bit. And uh, I think we do much better in our 21st century American English if we use the rendering of happy, that makarios is a inner happiness. It is a joyful attitude that, is, that uh, accompanies or even produces the responsibility you and I have to rejoice always and in everything give thanks. Now, is that in itself a blessing? Of course that's a blessing. The opportunity we have to rejoice is a blessing. I don't deny that it's a blessing. I do deny that this passage describes it as a blessing because I think we do better with a joy concept than a blessing concept. Eulagetos is your term for blessed, and there are plenty of doctrinal contexts in the New Testament for our blessings in Christ. We are uh, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So if you want to talk about our blessedness, talk about our blessings. I'll be glad to do that, but I'll do that with you out of Ephesians chapter 1. I will not do that out of the Beatitudes in Matthew, or out of this passage here. Happy are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. And the blessing comes, the happiness comes, in uh, the context of paterological teaching. The Father does the teaching. Peter understood truth, this aspect of truth, because God the Father had provided the instruction. And so the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is about to be rejected. Jesus is turning away from that. He is starting to prepare his disciples for the cross. He's going to tell them, stop telling people I'm the Christ. It's coming up right here. This hinge event right here. I cannot stress this enough. Verse 20, he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. It is now, uh, he's now one year out from the crucifixion, a little bit under a year, and he has uh, 11 and a half months now to prepare these guys for, uh, for his departure. Verse 21 tells us that from this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. These things had to happen according to the scriptures. We've been studying that in 1 Corinthians 15. So we see uh, agreement with that here. But when he says, happy are you, makarios are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It is a statement of paterological teaching that God the Father had provided the illumination. 
But this is a little bit different than what we're accustomed to. And it's a little bit extraordinary. I want to make sure we discuss it here this morning. You and I are a little bit trapped in the way that we are church-age believer priests. Every single one of us was saved during the dispensation of the church. There's no one here old enough to have been saved prior to the dispensation of the church. So every single one of us that was saved in the dispensation of the church received God the Holy Spirit at the moment of our salvation. And when we receive God the Holy Spirit as a permanent indwelling influence, we have been blessed to have the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Well, we're studying in systematic theology as illumination, the illuminating work of God, the Holy Spirit, when church age believers uh, peer into the living and abiding word of God and God opens our spiritual eyes to see the truth. Now, believers prior to the church did not have the universal indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. And uh, the illumination that took place was still a Holy Spirit function with a living human spirit, but was external rather than internal. The, the Holy Spirit from outside the believer would open the spiritual eyes of the believer and still illuminate. Illumination would take place, but it was the Holy Spirit communicating to the human spirit externally. That makes sense? So David and Moses and Old Testament believers, Uriah the Hittite. All right, let me just grab an average believer from the Old Testament who was not spirit indwelled. We're kind of flawed with David because he was spirit indwelled and Moses was spirit indwelled. But let's just grab a, a non-profit, non-spirit indwelled, average, ordinary believer off the street. All right. So take uh, an example like Uriah the Hittite or take uh, any of these other examples from just normal, ordinary, run-of-the-mill believers. All right. How did they learn the word of God? They weren't they weren't indwelled by God the Holy Spirit, but they still enjoyed illumination. And that's the grace provision that God teaches believers from His Word. It was just external rather than internal, like you and I enjoy. Now, this is something a little bit different, because this is not the Holy Spirit at work. He doesn't say, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because the Holy Spirit illuminated you to have this understanding. This was a direct paterological illumination, different from pneumatological. We talk about pneuma for spirit. So the study of the Holy Spirit is pneumatology. Pater is father. So the study of God the Father is paterology. Anything that's oriented to the Father then is paterological. Anything oriented to the Holy Spirit is pneumatological. And anything oriented to God the Son is, we call that Christological. Well, here he says, the Father has revealed this to you. And we find that this relates back to Isaiah 54. And we realize that there is a future promise, not made to the church, but made to Israel. And the future promise was being taught by the Father. And uh, fulfillment of this. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Tremendous prosperity and blessing, material Wealth that will be abundant to the restored nation of Israel and the millennial kingdom. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones. Now, these would be useless uh, building materials for fortification purposes if there was really a war that was going to go on. You don't want gems in your in your wall. They'd get shattered and smashed and the wall will be knocked through. But there, there will not be an attack against Jerusalem at this point in time because uh, there will be armies gathered against it. They will be marching around it and camped around it like a, a hippie love fest. And we'll talk about that when we get into, into the Gog-Magog rebellion. 
But they've beaten their swords into plowshares. They've, they've turned their uh, uh, spears into pruning hooks. They never again learn war. There is no military industrial complex throughout the thousand year reign of Christ. And so the march on Jerusalem is not a conventional warfare battle. It is a great human rights protest march, and we'll describe that when we get to Gog Magog material in Revelation chapter 20. So you can make do with these battlements of rubies and gates of crystal and wall of precious stones uh, so far as that goes. But then the key verse in verse 13, all your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. We have a promise of a teaching ministry that will occur here. And the blessings of the Jewish people in the millennium is that they have direct teaching from the Father, direct teaching from God. Gentiles were going to be taking hold of them. Ten Gentiles will grab the, the robe of one Jew to say, teach us, teach us, for the Lord is with you. The Lord God of Israel is with you. So when uh, Jesus Christ realizes that Peter has had a patriological insight, it is a source of happiness for him. It is a joy for him. He realizes how close they are to the kingdom, to uh, the dreams of Zion and glory. Everybody that's talking about the Zionistic movement today or uh, the Zionism efforts in Jerusalem today, uh, they're not consistent with the Father's program now, are they? Well, we'll deal with that as well. So happy are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I want you to recognize that that element is entirely Jewish and has nothing to do with the church. When the church finally comes about on the day of Pentecost in, in uh, just a few, a year and a month after this, um, we don't have a patriological teaching ministry. We have illumination through the permanent dwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. And that is, uh, that is a significant difference. All right. So now we get into the uh, rock and the church. We've dealt with the rock already. Let's look at the church. Upon this rock, this testimony, this confession that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, upon this confession, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall I be bound on in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So it is the, the testimony that he is the Christ is the rock is the foundation. But they cannot testify to that yet. Tell no one that he is the Christ. And so he says, I will build my church. It hasn't started yet. It's a future event. But it's a not yet event. Because he tells them, don't warn anybody that I'm the Christ. That's the testimony that's the rock for the church. But not yet. There is a delay until that church construction can begin. Now, we have the testimony here. I want to bring a couple of items to your attention. Because, again, we're trapped. We're 21st century American Christians. And since however long we've been alive, and however long we've been, I mean, spiritually alive, however long we've been in Bible study... You and I are trapped by having New Testaments in our Bibles. And we're going to try to separate from that a little bit here this morning. So just act like a moment, for a moment that you don't know anything from the New Testament. All right. Um, don't assume for the moment that when he says on this rock, I will build my church. That Peter 
clicks into a concept here that, oh, he's talking about the bride of Christ. He's talking about this mystical body that's neither Jew nor Gentile, that's one body in Christ. And it's going to have a universal aspect and a local aspect with pastors and deacons. Clear all that out of your mind. You don't know anything about that. All right? Because Peter doesn't know anything about that. Not a hint. Not a clue. When he hears, on this rock I will build my ecclesia, what does Peter know? And how would Peter receive that message of, on this rock I will build my ecclesia? That's what we have to deal with. Now, apart from the New Testament, I mean, apart from the book of Acts and, and the epistles and so forth, in the gospel record, we don't have that many references to ecclesia. We've got this passage here. Let me just put these other ones in your thinking. Matthew 18. 17 through 20. This is if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, all too often, we view this as a pattern for church discipline. We view this as a pattern for uh, how to admonish a brother in Christ as a part of the church. And yet, we need to remind ourselves this is not a church age text. This is a gospel text, the gospel of Matthew, delivered in the dispensation of Israel when brothers were something else. They were Jewish brethren. They were kinsmen according to the flesh. They was a part of the, the tribal nature of the, and the family nature of the nation of Israel. And the ecclesia was something else. The assembly was something else. The assembly was not the church universal, the body of Christ. I want to be very clear on this. The church began at Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a whole new creation took place. Prior to the church coming to existence, uh, coming into existence, Israel was the steward. We call it the dispensation of Israel, dispensation of the Jews, stewardship of the Jews. And uh, and the term ecclesia meant something different at that point than it means after Pentecost. And I want to make sure that you uh, you don't leave out of here at the top of the hour with uh, with some confusion. So, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take two, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. That's quotation out of Mosaic Law. This is very Old Testament. This is very much consistent with the pattern of spirituality that Israel was uh, bound to observe. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the ecclesia. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the ecclesia, even to the church, and we'll define what we mean by this, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, the terms Gentile and tax collector are very consistent with Old Testament theology. Very consistent with the attitude of Israel and their stewardship. That uh, the Gentiles had no part in their covenant blessings uh, in the, according to the Abrahamic covenant, but specifically according to the Mosaic covenant. They were the covenant nation of the Lord, and Gentiles had no part in that unless they converted, became proselytes, got circumcised, and uh, became practicing Jews. The tax collectors, of course, were the traitors. Matthew was a traitor, a tax collector, a Jew that was serving a Gentile nation, collecting taxes for Rome, for example, was a traitor to his race. He was a traitor to his covenant nation, the, the Jewish people. So this becomes, this becomes uh, an application of it, and it's in a Jewish context. You will note again 
in this. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Keep in mind, this passage is spoken to a group. This is spoken to all the disciples. And it's whatever you all, whatever y'all. It's a second person plural. Which until I came to Texas, I didn't realize English had such a wonderful pronoun as y'all. We never use y'all in uh, Washington State. We didn't realize what an effective communication device that was. So this is y'all. Jesus is telling y'all, telling all of his disciples that they have that authority for binding and loosing. It's not just Peter by himself. All right. If you want to really get wrapped up around Matthew 16 and say, oh, no, no, Peter's got the keys. Peter's got the keys. Peter binds and looses and apostolic succession. And it's Peter's throne in Rome and all of this other stuff. Well, if you're so tunnel vision wrapped up around Matthew 16, just look back a couple more chapters to Matthew 18 and see that all of the apostles received this, uh, these keys and this binding and loosing prerogative. All right, the last deal there over in John chapter 20 and verse 23. does not utilize the term church. But we do have the aspect of um, the binding and loosing, the retaining and releasing, and the interaction between the heavenly realm and the human realm. The, the Gentile stewardship was earthly. The Jewish stewardship is earthly. This simply had shadows of the things to come. But the... The new stewardship about to be revealed is an interdynamic stewardship that has expressions on the earth, but, but is accomplished primarily in the heavenly places. And we see this here. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And we will address that when we address the binding and loosing here in the subpoints. All right. I probably would have done better if I would have just left that one off for the moment because it does not really apply to Ecclesia the way that uh, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 do. Those are your references to Ecclesia right there as the church. So, understanding free, uh, future active indicative, I will build. It hasn't started yet. It is a future activity that Jesus Christ intends to accomplish and will accomplish. Because he accomplishes everything according to the Father's design. I will build my church at the future from Oikadameo. Oikos. Oikos is house. Oikadameo. The building up of a house. And he's going to build this. A little bit later on, he tells them that in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. But here he's going to build his house, his ecclesia. And his ecclesia is going to have a place in the Father's house. All right? And we'll, we'll demonstrate that and show you the inner connection on that. Because um, 
one of the things we want to make very clear is that even though we do draw distinctions between Israel and the church, between Jews and Gentiles and the different capacities at different stages of, of God's plan, Every believer is still a believer. Every believer has eternal life. Every believer has sonship under God the Father. All right? And they will have an eternal destiny based upon their place, based upon their house. And we think of it as the the house of the Gentiles, the house of the Jews, the royal house of Jesus Christ. That is the royal family of God in Christ. He is the firstborn. He is the heir, the heir of all things. And we are in Christ. So if... uh, in upcoming classes, as we start to expand upon this a little bit, just try to think in terms of houses, royal houses. And if you've got a, a background in medieval history or English history or anything like that, if you're familiar with the House of York and the House of Lancaster and the House of Tudor and the House of Stuart, then you'll understand the nature of different houses. As, and as Christ said, in my Father's house are different dwelling places. So anyway, we're going we're gonna to associate a lot of things like that coming up. Simply take note that he says, I will build. It does not exist yet. From the point of time that he spoke it, he's speaking in 32 A.D., a year prior to the cross. In 32 A.D., the ecclesia he's talking about, the ecclesia that's built upon the confession of Jesus as the Christ, the ecclesia that withstands the gates of hell, the ecclesia that distributes keys authority for heaven and earth interrelated activity, that ecclesia doesn't exist yet. All right, it is a future spoken promise in the future. Now, he says, I will build not just any ecclesia. He said, I will build my ecclesia. My ecclesia. Ecclesia is the noun, feminine noun, number 1577. In the Strong's Concordance. And I want to ask at this point. Just consider anything. Anything that hasn't happened yet. Anything that's alien to your experience. How would you understand it? If someone speaks of something that's not here yet. Well, I think you would relate it to something that is already here. I think I would relate it to a term that is already in use. And what does it mean up till now? See, you know, if someone would have uh, asked me in uh, 1989 about my wife, what would I have thought? What would I have said? I said, you're crazy. (laughs) I don't have a wife. What are you talking about? When he says, I will build my ecclesia in 32 AD, he's not talking about the church universal that you and I understand, that, that you and I are a part of, that has had the stewardship since 33 AD on. What was Peter's reaction? What would he have understood it to be? All right. And I ask that as a rhetorical, under subpoint one, without knowledge of mystery doctrine. What would Peter's understanding be? In other words, what was the meaning of ecclesia before the Holy Spirit indwelled a new creation called ecclesia? I'll give you a little bit of a survey here on this. 
First of all, the Septuagint has 103 uses of ecclesia in 96 verses. So it is not an alien term. It's not out of the blue. It is a term he's familiar with as a word, as a, as a Greek word. Septuagint by this time had been around for a couple of centuries. Most of the Jewish people were, were not fluent in Hebrew. They used Aramaic as a native spoken language, but Greek was the trade language. Greek was the business language. Peter was a uh, businessman in a largely Gentile area. And uh, we don't know that he had uh, a tremendous background in, uh, in uh, Hebrew. All the indications are with his name of Cephas and uh, the name of Simon Barjona and so forth, that probably Aramaic was his native tongue. And uh, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, these other languages surrounding his nation, would uh, he'd have had a little hard time with it. And the Septuagint does have 103 uses of ecclesia in 96 verses. So it is not a rare term by any stretch. It is, it is well-founded throughout the Bible, throughout the, the Bible of their day. What was their Bible? What was their Bible? Yeah, what we call today the Old Testament. And, to a large extent, it was the Septuagint. That was the most commonly copied manuscript. The Hebrew texts were regarded as holy and God-breathed and inspired. They were kept in the synagogues. They were t- the scrolls were kept under custody in the temple and, and so forth. A typical believer on the street who wouldn't have a complete Bible anyway, but he'd have a book here or a scroll there and a scroll there. In many cases, he'd have Septuagint scrolls. He'd have Greek scrolls. All right. So back to the example I was giving earlier. If somebody in 1989 had come up to me and said, uh, tell me about your wife, then I wouldn't have had a framework at the time. I would have said, well, I'm not married. You're, you, you, you must have heard something wrong, right? But at least I would have known what the word wife meant. See, he didn't walk up to me and say, uh, you know, tell me about your, uh, your, 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 your snarl farb. Right? And what? What is that? What's a snarl farb, you know? Linty's going to tell me after class. I thought I was just making up a word. I think I found something in the South African dialect of, of English. But it's not like when Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, that he was using a term that would have just confused Peter even more. He used a term Peter was familiar with, a term that is well attested throughout the the Old Testament, at least in its Greek translation of the Septuagint. It It primarily applies to the congregation or the assembly of the sons of Israel. It is the ecclesia of, of Israel or the ecclesia of Yahweh. The ecclesia of the Lord is the congregation of the sons of Israel. And uh, we'll see some of those passages here. There is a high concentration in Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. The Septuagint combined Ezra and Nehemiah into one long book, into one long scroll. I think it's probably best to separate them into two separate Hebrew books, but be that as it may. Uh, Joel has a high concentration of ecclesia. And a book that does not belong in the Bible, but it is in the Septuagint, the apocryphal book of Sirach, contains a high concentration of ecclesia. So again, part of the known literature of the day would not have been alien to, uh, to Peter's understanding.
Do take note, though, that the usage is largely secular rather than spiritual. The usage is largely secular rather than spiritual. The congregation of the sons of Israel that observes the new year coming up here, what, tomorrow, isn't it? Rosh Hashanah in the Hebrew calendar? You don't follow that? Um, And the gathering of the congregation of Israel for the recognition of the new year. uh, Secular rather than religious. When they gather for the Day of Atonement, okay, then that's spiritual. When they gather for Pentecost, that's spiritual. But or when they gather for Passover, that's spiritual. But so many of the uses that we find in Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Joel, Sirach, they are not spiritual at all. And so the idea when he says, I'm going to build my ecclesia, Peter might have been led to think in terms of something secular, something uh, political. That this uh, is this the... Uh, declaration of the uh, of his administration. How is he going to assemble an administration? See, when the congregation was assembled, in some cases they were assembled to hear uh, a new law that was being handed down, or they were assembling together to put away their foreign wives under Ezra and the leadership there in Ezra and Nehemiah. Sometimes they were simply uh, the, the congregation was gathered together to identify boundaries, land boundaries, and the progress made in different building projects and things like that. So the usage is largely secular rather than spiritual. Ecclesia, thirdly, subpoint C now, Ecclesia typically translates kahal. I transliterate the Hebrew for you. I expect that by now you've gotten accustomed to Ecclesia. You can read, it even looks like. E-K-K-L, doesn't it? Ecclesia. Shorty, longy. Ecclesia. Ecclesia typically translates kahal. When it's taking a Hebrew passage and putting it into Greek, it typically translates kahal. That's your Hebrew, kahal, number 6951. But we've got a problem. Because whereas ecclesia is almost exclusively a translation for kahal, kahal has other translations besides ecclesia. Kahal also finds itself translated by synagogue, by synagogue. Synagogue. S-U-N-A-G-O-G-E, synagogue, number 4864. And I forget what the breakdown is, but let's just say raw numbers for illustration purposes. These are probably not accurate, but let's say you've got 100 kahals in the Old Testament. 80 of them get rendered by ecclesia. 20 of them get, re- get rendered by synagogue. When we carry it across into English, then we would have 100 uses of kahal. We'd have 80 churches and 20 synagogues. <laughs> because church is our English rendering for ecclesia. Assembly, church, congregation. And synagogue is our translation, transliteration for synagogue. All right. And so this then sparks the question. What, does, what, would, what did Peter understand when he said, on this rock I will build my synagogue? Jesus was a rabbi. They called him rabbi. Was he intending to build a synagogue dedicated to him? We have lots of examples of tailor-specialized synagogues 
that followed the teachings and, and examples of a particular noteworthy rabbi. And I think so long as the term maybe was spoken in Aramaic, that might be left up in the air. But in Greek, he didn't call it a synagogue. He called it an ecclesia. I will build my assembly. I will build my church. Now, is the term church appropriate prior to Pentecost? An ecclesia is a body of those that have been called out. A body of those who have been called out. Ek, like exit, and kaleo, to call. A body of called out ones. Now, again, we understand we're called out. We're called out of the world. We're called by uh, God's sovereign grace. We are elected. We are chosen. We are called. And he has put us into this body. We are called out ones. And because we are called out ones, together we compose the ecclesia. That's our standpoint. But a called out body is any called out body. It may be that there's soldiers coming from a distance, and so we call together a militia. And this group of called out ones is, is an ecclesia. Or a political ecclesia that has been called in the, in the marketplace to settle a, a political question. Or even, uh, we have one instance in the book of Acts where it is an unruly mob. An unruly mob is called an ecclesia. In one, one text there in the book of Acts. Why? Well, they were called together. They were called together for the purpose of running Paul out of town. <laughs> All right. So stop to realize that the term itself does not define itself. The term simply describes what's going on. It is an assembly. It is a called out body, for instance. Uh, and then the function is determined on why was it called and, and what is it supposed to be doing. So... The, the ecclesia, or particularly in the Hebrew now in the Old Testament, the kahal, the kahal Yahweh, the, the assembly of the Lord, the congregation of the Lord. Uh, why does God have a congregation? Why does God call believers together? And under what circumstances does God call believers together? That's where I think we'll get a good clue. Now, let me just put a few things up here on this. Are you familiar with any uh, passages that uh, speak to, let me just pull up a Bible, speak to the congregation of the sons of Israel or the assembly of the Lord or uh, any, any passages like that? Psalms, whereabouts in Psalms? All right, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to bring a few of them up here and then uh, maybe if there's some other ones that, that you're familiar with, we can look at those as well. But if you're looking for a congregation or uh, uh, assembly, let's just go with that. There's a few other terms that we can look for, but you're going to find that these in the Hebrew are going to be by kahal or a couple of other possibilities, aid and some others. Uh, the Septuagint is going to render them with ecclesia or with uh, sunagoge couple of, uh, of things like that. Starting in Exodus 12. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. And this is the institution of Passover. And he is to speak to the congregation of Israel, to the kahal of Israel in the Hebrew. All right. Pretty sure it would be Ecclesia in Greek. Let's 
Ha, oh, it's made off. It's not even kaha. And then Septuagint. Sunagoge. Sunagoge. Quion Israel. What was the nation of Israel? Were they a nation? Were they a family? Were they a uh, federation of tribes? Were they a congregation? The answer is yes to all of these. The answer is yes to every single one of these. You know, if you think about the United States, we're 50 states, right? But you combine all those 50 states, and what are we? Yeah, the United States. We're a nation, right? But are we a congregation? Is there any way that we would view America as the congregation of America? No. No. We're a nation. And we're a federation of 50 states. But we're not locked into our state, for example. Not everyone that lives in Texas was born in Texas. They usually want to be. All right. Israel, the the Jewish nation, was a confederation of tribes. Each tribe had their land grant. They had their... And so you didn't just decide, hey, I'm going to pick up and move over here to Naphtali. Well, what's your tribe? Your tribe is Reuben. See, that's who you are. That's who you identify with. Your family is part of a clan. Your clan is part of your tribe. And your family and your clan are more important than you (laughs) in a tribal clan situation like Israel was. All right. And so you don't marry who you want to. You marry who your parents have arranged for you, who your family has established for you, because that is what's going to benefit the family within the clan and the clan within the tribe. Again, we are alien (laughs) You and I are 21st century American Christians, and some of this is hard to deal with, all right? So the congregation of Israel. Now, we're told in Romans that not all Israel is Israel. That you can be born a Jew in a tribe, in a family, in a clan, in the nation, but excluded from the congregation. Excluded from the congregation. We have qualifications for inclusion and exclusion within the congregation, within the assembly, within who belongs, who does not belong, who needs to go through a purification ritual before he can be restored back to the congregation. All right. And then who would not be entitled to it no matter what. So we'll address some of those. Um, Grab a few more of these. Gary, did you find the one in the Psalms? Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Congregation. Okay. That's an interesting one, too. It doesn't necessarily refer to Israel. It actually is looking forward to resurrection and glory in, in eternity. The assembly of the righteous. It is Edath Tzadik. And in the Greek it is the uh, 
Ooh, the boule de Cayon. It's not even Ecclesia or uh, Septuagint did something weird with that. Now, Septuagint is not scripture, by the way. It's a translation of the scripture. And another psalm you had? My foot stands on a level place in the congregations, plural. I shall bless the Lord. En ecclesiais, plural. Eulageso se curia. I will bless you, Lord. Interesting that it's plural there. In the congregations, plural. Now, think about the positive volition that statement makes. Because as far as the Old Testament is concerned, there's only one congregation. That's the congregation of Israel. Here is a, an admission that in my father's house are many dwelling places. And a congregation of believing Midian under a high priest like uh, Jethro may actually be able to give glory to Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. Or the congregation of, there's also angelic congregations I've got to tell you about. The assembly of the gods that takes place of the mighty ones in Isaiah and in Psalms. How about Isaiah 1? I cannot abide iniquity in the solemn assembly. All right. Or no Moabite shall enter the assembly unto the tenth generation. Also, by the way, no dwarf or no humpback or no uh, deformed man, man with crushed testicles or other. There were other things that would keep a person out of the congregation. Okay. Some of those things we say, well, wait a minute. Why is that? That doesn't seem right. If he's saved, he should be in the congregation. Well, again, separate yourself from your priesthood and the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit you enjoy and the spiritual reality we operate in in the heavenly places where we have a priesthood that's not on the basis of birth or physical requirement, but on the power of an indestructible life. And of course, I would not exclude any dwarf from the Melchizedek priesthood and the church age believer priest i know a pastor who's <laughs> four foot six all right and you know too you know you know what i'm talking about yeah tommy okay four foot six he's a pastor he's not excluded from the congregation from the ecclesia if he was an old testament believer he would have been he would have been saved he could have gone to heaven when he died but he never would have partaken of Passover in the temple precincts with the priests and the Levites. Never. It's the nature of the uh, shadows of the uh, pictures and the portrayals of the Old Testament priesthood. All right. So when he says, I will build my ecclesia, we get some idea here that a congregation, an ecclesia, a called out body, is a body that comes for worship. It's a body that comes according to God's plan. It's a body of the righteous. We saw that uh, congregation of the righteous. It would exclude those that maybe have uh, uh, a physical birth requirement, but they're not living like it. This would exclude, from Peter's standpoint, this would exclude all these non-observant Jews. They're racially Jewish. They live in the land, but they don't observe Passover. They don't observe Pentecost. They don't uh, offer the sacrifices. They don't say the prayers. They don't pay attention to the scriptures. They are non-observant. And so as non-observant, they have no part in the congregation, and they're fine with that. They don't really want to be in the congregation. See? So 
so far as that goes. All right, I think we could examine a few more of these, but I think we've caught the when they're camping, all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they move out in their different orders. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Um, Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord. We get up to... Uh, comes down off the mountain. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. <laughs> You know, if you're going to make a God, make for us a God, what kind of God do you end up with? One that you make. And if you make it, you uh, control it. So this is the, uh, this is the understanding of congregation and assembly and has nothing to do with church as we would understand it today. Has nothing to do with the body of Christ. Has nothing to do with one, uh, no Gentiles, no Jews, but all one body in Christ. So everything that we, all of the theology that we pour into Ecclesia after Pentecost, you cannot pour that into Ecclesia before Pentecost. Does that make sense? Ecclesia before Pentecost is simply congregation, assembly, uh, in, in, the, in the Jewish framework of, of their status as a covenant nation. And that's how Peter would have understood this when he said, on this rock I will build my church. But yet Peter would have wondered, what is this new church going to be? Because it hasn't, it's not yet in existence. It is a new church. not the congregation of Israel. It is the church of the Lamb. It is the ecclesia of Jesus Christ, built upon the, the rock of Peter's confession. Something entirely new. All right. Last thing we'll say about this, under point C, the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades is an Old Testament idiom for physical death. When he says the gates of hell will not overpower it. So much confusion over the gates of hell. You know, that boy, if we just uh, give the gospel to everybody, then uh, they have to get saved. Because the gates of hell can't overpower the church. And uh, this is the, the flaw behind amillennialism or postmillennialism, where the church is going to convert the planet and everyone will get saved. And once everybody on the planet is saved, Jesus can come back and we'll hand him his kingdom when he gets here. Because, boy, that gates of hell can't prevail against us. We got the keys. We're conquering this world. Onward, Christian soldiers. All right. <laughs> That's got to be depressing for those that get wrapped up in that kind of a crusade. I think as a percentage we're probably at an all-time low. Global population, the ratio of the truly regenerate as a percentage or as a ratio of the global population. And it's going downhill fast. Look at the birth rates in the, in the Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist territories. Just by birth rate alone. And then even in Christian, quote-unquote, Christian nations, what percentage are truly regenerate? How many are going to be saying, oh, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that. And he'll say, I never knew you. They had a Christian culture, but they didn't have a conversion experience. They were not truly born again. And uh, in particular, 
when you separate out the Roman territory from the truly Christian territory, you wonder how many are there are regenerate on the planet today. All right. Look at the idiom here. Job 38.17, Psalm 9.13, 107.18, Isaiah 38.10, and Jonah 2.6. We start with Job. We're in the book of Job right now with my teenagers on Sunday night, the teen class that I'm blessed to do. Job 38.10. I let them know my suspicion. I think we've had a typo all these years. I think that uh, this is Bob, right? It's just years and years ago, this manuscript got, there was a typo there, and I started calling them Job, and well, we're kind of stuck with it now, aren't we? It could be. could be the world's most famous typo, you think? All right, probably not. Job means enemy anyway, and adversary. Uh, Job 38:17. Have you? Verse 16 says, "Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me." If you know all this, this is part of the taunt. This is where God is uh, letting Job know that he's not God. Right. And if Job, uh, it starts off with uh, gird up your loins like a man, I will ask you and you instruct me since you're since you're such a big know it all, Job, you must be God. You can teach me something. And uh, so then he goes and he uh, actually presents a, this is like a soliloquy here of some tremendous Depth. We get glimpses and clues into God's creation and His wisdom and the things that He does. And uh, continuing on in chapter 39, I like verse 31, actually, 38-31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Are you the one that's holding the constellations together? This actually shows a remarkable astronomy knowledge. That goes back to the uh, earliest of stages of humanity there. And uh, everything else through chapter 39. And then uh, Behemoth and Leviathan in, in uh, 40 and 41. So the Lord basically tells Job all this. He says, if you can do all that. If you can do all that, then your own, then I will testify that your own right arm can save you. That's in chapter 40 and verse 14. If all of this is true, then he says, then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. If you really are God Almighty, then you don't need me. Save yourself. But unless you're God, you can't save yourself. Only God provides salvation. Anyway, it's a, it's a tremendous rebuke. But in the light of that rebuke, we have the idiom there, the keys of Hades, the gates of Hades, rather. I'm sorry, not keys, gates. Gates of Hades. What the New American Standard calls there the gates of death in uh, verse 17. Death and Hades being synonymous terms. Psalm 913. Psalm 913. In fact, I should look at the Septuagint of Job 38:17. Thanatu for death. The Pulai Thanatu, gates of death. It's 
verse 17 in the Hebrew as well. Maweth, shaklare, maweth. Pulai thanatu, gates of death. Okay. Psalm 9.13. Verse 11 says, Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. What peoples? Well, Israel would be one people. You'd want to start there. They're the covenant people, the people of God. But you don't want to limit God's praise to his people. How about all the peoples? We have peoples, plural. We're talking about all the groups of humanity. He who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of Hades or the gates of death. Why? To save you because you deserve it? To save you because you're worthy? You've earned and deserved it? It's that I may tell of all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. It becomes a testimony. Every one of us that's saved from the pit are to the t- praise of the glory of His grace for all eternity. Psalm 107, verse 18. Starts off in verse 17 in this context with fools. Because of their rebellious ways and because of their iniquities were afflicted. You reap what you sow. Walk like a fool and face the consequences. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. Isn't he a, isn't he a God of grace? What a blessing. All right, the last two here, Isaiah 38.10. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. Remember, he was about to die. And God granted mercifully an extension, 15 years to his life. I said, in the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol, the gates of hell. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. I said, I will not see the Lord, the Lord of the land of the living. I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. And he goes on to describe this. And we know that God uh, delivered him from that. And he was given 15 more years and he recovered. But we have the idiom there, the gates of Sheol. We've seen the gates of Hades. We've seen the gates of death. Finally, Jonah 2.6. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. I think Jonah physically died inside that whale. I don't think his body was sustained. I think that he descended to Sheol and that his soul descended to Sheol. Even while his body was uh, being digested. In any event, then he was restored to physical life and regurgitated up on the beach. But Jonah 2.6, verse 4, I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. Now, did the whale swim down there? Well, the whale stayed in the ocean. Or the great fish stayed in the ocean. Or the, uh, the le- leviathan. Whatever it was. 
whatever biological creature it was, or not, whatever angelic being it was. Anyway, he was, his body was in the belly, but his soul descended. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life, my soul, from the pit, O Lord, my God. So we see the idiomatic nature of this. And when he says the gates of hell cannot withstand it, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not withstand it. We realize that he is building a congregation. He is intending to build an assembly that will not be limited by physical death. He is building an assembly that will not be limited by physical death. For example, we have a portion of his assembly right here in Austin. It's a small portion of his assembly in this lampstand. But then there's other lampstands in Austin. There's a little bit larger, but still a small portion of his assembly in Austin. And there's a small portion of his assembly in the United States. There's a small portion of his assembly on planet Earth today. But the bulk of his assembly is not on planet Earth today. We've had 20 centuries of those that have gone before. And uh, he has an assembly that is not limited by physical death. What a contrast, huh? Go back to the Old Testament. You know, after David died, did he have any more trips into the assembly? No. It was then Solomon's turn to lead the solemn assembly. It was Solomon's turn to lead the prayer dedication for the temple. David couldn't go into the assembly anymore. Where was he? In the grave. That's right. His soul was in Abraham's bosom. He was no longer a part of the congregation of Israel. So far as it's revealed there. All right. Well, we will return in one week and deal with binding and loosing. And we'll talk about our heavenly activity and our earthly activity. And we'll describe the order on this is very important. We're going to get a little linguistic on you next week, but it's important that we know that what we bind on earth is what God does. God's not up there in heaven saying, oh my goodness, I've got to go bind that guy because this knucklehead down there bound him. Right? God's not a puppet. And the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the binding and loosing activity that we do, we're not making God dance to what we do. God's the one that's doing it. and We reflect that here on the earth. And uh, that should become clear as well when we look at the language of the passage. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for these couple of extra minutes I stole. Thank you uh, for giving me the voice to, uh, to teach the full duration of this class. We pray for continued understanding and diligence. We want to understand our function as church-age believer priests. We, want, we dearly want to know what our function is in the heavenly places in Christ because that's where every spiritual blessing resides. So, Father, keep our attention on the things above and uh, let today be the day that the Lord himself descends with a shout. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.